Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Blokeology, Evidence-Based Health, Fitness and Lifestyle. I'm Dr Ewan Lawson and in this episode I'm delighted to bring you an interview with Pixie Turner. Now Pixie is a registered associate nutritionist, she's got a master's in nutrition and she's an award-winning blogger, food blogger in particular and she writes regularly and she's a fantastic speaker. She now spends her time very much all about debunking nutrition myths and she's a really passionate advocate for a balanced approach to how we go about looking at food and nutrition and of course it's got to be balanced with exercise and sleep and all the other good things in life. She's got a really fascinating background. She basically, she's got a couple of books out there and her first book, The Wellness Rebel, was really all about kind of the you know, taking to task some of the myths and misconceptions which were around in that wellness industry and on places like Instagram. She was huge on Instagram, Pixie was, uh, still is huge on Instagram, I should say. Um, But she was very much all about that kind of wellness approach. And then she had something of an epiphany and sort of has transformed how she tackled things. She went on to do a master's and she is very much all about now um, tacking some of the kind of the more outlandish suggestions that you might see in that sort of clean diet, wellness kind of approach you'll see on Instagram. Um, her most recent book, The No Need to Diet book, pretty much does what it says on the tin and explains all about why diets and overexercising don't necessarily work. Um, she talks about orthorexia in that book. Um, some of you who've been following for a good while know we talked about orthorexia with uh, Rini McGregor a few episodes ago. And we talked about one study in particular, which showed the association with following clean eating types on Instagram um, and orthorexia. And our Pixie was actually the author of that study, um, and which I didn't realize at the time of the interview. And I'm slightly embarrassed. Um, it was a really important study. Um, and uh, Pixie was very gracious about my ignorance in that regard. Let's get on to that in a moment. I just wanted to say that um, my apologies for being away for a couple of weeks. It was a slightly unexpected break. I have decided with the podcast that I'm going to go to one episode every two weeks. It's going to be fortnightly. There are so many interesting things that are popping up around the podcast. And when I speak to people and kind of the areas that we're covering in terms of evidence-based health, and I want to spend more time making sure I get the message out in other ways as well. I've got some ideas for the things I want to get on the blog in terms of writing and also some book possibilities too. So I need to create just a little bit of time. And so in order to do that, I'm going to be putting the podcast out every two weeks rather than every week. So um, if you're enjoying it, please do sign up for the newsletter and I can let you know about all those other exciting things that are happening. Uh, You'll find that at blokeology.io forward slash journal. Please do sign up there. Tell your mates if you have enjoyed the episodes um, and steer them towards it as well. Okay, so let's get back to the interview with Pixie. So the first thing I wanted to ask her was to tell us a little bit more about how she went from being a wellness blogger and Instagrammer to her newfound uh, position as a nutritionist, registered nutritionist and science communicator. Six years ago, I was a massive wellness wanker. I was uh, not a person I would ever be friends with now. I was someone who was like balls deep into the clean eating movement, like super wellnessy. I was doing the whole plant-based 
slash vegan, gluten-free, refined sugar-free, soy-free, juice cleanse, superfoods, all that kind of stuff. If you could think of something wellnessy, I was definitely doing it at that time. And on top of that, I was posting it all on Instagram and was basically saying how wonderful what I was doing was, which was a total lie. And you've been, I know it's well publicized that you've gone on this journey from Instagram wellness sort of bod to kind of um, now nutritionist, uh, you know, um, you know, science-based nutrition, skeptic and all that side of things. How did you actually feel at the time? And how did you think that that's sort of six, seven years ago when you got into those, how, how, how did you physically feel and how did you think you got into it? How did you, how did you, how did you get led to it? Oh, I know exactly how I got a little into it. It was because, so my dad had a, his cholesterol checked and it was super high. And this was despite the fact that he ate very well. He was uh, very fit. He's one of those mammals, you know, middle-aged men in Lycra doing a lot of cycling, one of those. And because it was unexpected, myself and my two siblings, we also had our cholesterol checked. And I was 19 at the time. My siblings were younger than me and all of us had super high cholesterol. And this was obviously a concern. And because I was the oldest, I was the one who was told, um, come back in a year. If it's still high, then it's likely genetic and you'll have to go on statins the rest of your life. And that didn't really appeal to me. So I figured I would take that year and I would try and do something uh, with lifestyle to try and do what I could to not have to go on drugs the rest of my life. I have nothing against statins. I just thought I was so young. It was a bit scary. The idea of being on drugs for the rest of my life was just a bit intimidating at that point. And I found Dr. Google and I Google things. <laughs> and uh, naturally, when you go to Dr. Google, you find the most terrible of all possible options that you could possibly do to yourself. And I found the Australian wellness bloggers and started following what they were doing with the whole like paleo thing and no sugar. And through that, I then found the UK wellness bloggers, the UK clean eating movement on Instagram. And I looked at these people. I I thought, wow, they're so like shiny and happy and healthy and glowy and their lives just seem so perfect. And hey, they're all basically thin white women. I totally belong here. This is great. I'm going to go join the ranks. And so I started an Instagram account and I started posting about my food and I started copying what these guys were doing and what they were preaching with their diet and very quickly fell deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and cut out huge numbers of things from my diet and thought it was the best thing I could do for my health. Yeah. It wasn't, spoiler alert. <laughs> Did it have any, as I, I suppose, uh, for the sake of scientific credibility, I should ask whether it had any effect on your cholesterol, first of all, just in case. Um, a little bit, but my cholesterol has been really weird since then. Honestly, um, we're still not exactly sure what's going on with it. We're still not exactly sure if I have, um, if I do have familial hypercholesteremia, like my dad does. He had the genetic tests and he got it. Uh, we don't know if I do. Um, my cholesterol literally goes up and down so much that it really, in a way that it really shouldn't. And my endocrinologist is just confused at this point and just says, Hey, we'll keep tracking it until we get a clear picture. That clear picture has not emerged yet. So. I don't actually know if it helped or not. Yeah. But okay. I think the important thing to note is that there there were there were some good things I was doing. I was eating more vegetables than before rather than living off ready meals. I was drinking less. I actually started going to the gym properly. And so I'm sure these things did probably have a little bit of a positive effect, but I could have done all those things without the crazy obsession and anxiety that comes with going down a clean eating path. That's exactly what I was going to ask about, because, I mean, they're obviously not bad things to do, cutting out kind of processed food and, you know, cutting out a bit of alcohol. 
but it's that whole clean eating thing, isn't it? And that mm. anxiety and obsessive kind of compulsive elements to that. That's what I was going to ask how you were affected in that regard. Yeah, and on top of that, all the moral superiority of oh, my diet is clean. Look how amazing and pure and incredible I am. And isn't your diet shit in comparison? Um, yeah, that moral superiority made me a bit of a dick to be around, which my parents <laughs> did not appreciate. But yeah, there was a lot of anxiety uh, about is what I'm eating good enough? Is this clean and pure and healthy enough? And so, so I think stressing that much and being so anxious about every tiny thing that you're eating is really not particularly healthy. It was very much a, so a massive hyper focus on physical health and at the complete expense of mental health. My mental health was not absolutely not in a good place at that point. It was absolutely not healthy for me what I was doing. But I was so hyper focused on my physical health that that didn't matter to me at the time. I didn't see it as a problem until much later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. We had we had Renee McGregor on a few um of, oh, how many episodes it was ago talking about orthorexia. Oh, she's and, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I know that you've done you do work with people with orthorexia as well. Do you, do you think that clean eating thing I've heard, you know, the suggestion orthorexia is clearly not gone away. Do you think it's peaked and it's coming down a little? Or do, where, where do you think things are still? Nope, it's still going up. Uh, it's really? definitely seems to still be on the up. I am seeing it more and more. I'm seeing it more from people as they're able to more recognize it in themselves. And, um, also, I mean, I did the research, um, literally conducted the research linking clean eating, Instagram and orthorexia in a beautiful little depressing triangle. So I know that that link kind of exists and it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there was a paper that was that you were involved in that paper. I hadn't tweaked that at all. I wrote it. Oh, well, I, wrote I, it. I apologize, Pixie, because I had completely missed, <laughs> I had completely, I had completely missed that. I knew of the paper, which links Instagram and orthorexia and it was startling. It was, you know, it's, it's terrifying, but that is that a great bit of work. Well done. Thank you. Very proud of it. <laughs> yeah, no, that is an amazing paper and it was terrifying as well. Yeah, it's quite terrifying. And I think it just shows the unintended side effects of a lot of these uh, seemingly healthy behaviors and seemingly innocent uh, movements through social media. And hopefully it's helping people to realize that actually it's not just about, hey, wait, some people are eating more vegetables. Isn't that a good thing? There's a lot more to it than just that. Yeah, I, I, I must be very careful because I'm, I'm very easily triggered about um, social media and the internet these days. Uh, the last sort of few months, I've just gone on a whole complete bender about reading about all the harmful effects on our health. And this oh, is what... welcome to the club. I did a lot of reading around that for my last book, and it just made me go shit. I need to, I need to spend less time on this thing. Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying, and there is an irony in, of course, doing a podcast and talking about it. Though I'm slightly encouraged by the um, the book Ten Reasons to Give Up Social Media by is it Jaron Loney? I forget his name exact name now. Oh, I haven't read that one. Yeah, um, he actually says podcasts are okay because I think so because <laughs> it's not a visual or text based medium; it's an audio thing. Yeah. I think that definitely is different. Yeah, and you can't. I think the other thing is he sort of gives this example that if you were imagining the way that the internet works these days in terms of a social feed is that the podcast you just get one and it's constant and it can't be chopped up into tiny little attention grabbing segments. You know, if you That's were just true. in five or ten seconds of a, a hundred different podcasts just rammed at you constantly, that would be more like what a Facebook or an Instagram feed is like these days. Oh yeah. So um, he let podcasts off. So we'll um. We'll carry on feeling. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I think that's fair. <laughs> um, so, um, what the, so the big question is really what what changed? What what suddenly you know because it, it's very one of the interesting things that I've been reading about as well about the internet recently is about how people once people get fixed ideas and they get in their bubble, whether it's a clean eating bubble and whether it's that healthy living bubble, whatever it is, 
it's very unusual for people to leave that bubble because it's all so self-reinforcing and the confirmation bias that goes oh on. God, yeah. You are you are a complete massive, you know, uh, you know, you're an <laughs> in the nicest possible way. You're an amazing aberration to, to actually have stepped outside. It. It's so unusual. Yeah. Yeah, and I, honestly, I'm so glad that happened. But it, it obviously, when your when your bubble is that uh, intense and your bubble is that uh, fixed, it does take something quite drastic to to burst that. And it did take something quite drastic. So I went on a gap year after I finished my first degree, and as part of that, I went to Australia and I spent several months in Australia working. And uh, I did what all wellness bloggers do when they go to other countries. I met up with other wellness bloggers because those are the only people that you can eat with. So those are the only people you can basically hang out with. And I found a bunch of these wellness bloggers and we would go out to eat together. And one day there were a bunch of us who were sitting in a car together. And one of the other bloggers said, quote, I would never dream of vaccinating my kids. And that absolutely shocked me. That was the point where I just went, holy shit what am I doing with these people? This is awful. This is so wrong. I can't do this. I can't be associated with this. And that was the point where I thought to myself, if they're saying this, which is so fundamentally wrong, and they're saying it so casually, what else What else is there in the wellness movement that I thought was true that actually isn't? And so that was the exact point where I went home and uh, back to my flat in Melbourne and I started slowly reading about everything and challenging everything that I believed to be true about food. And I did it slowly because uh, it was challenging. It was not fun, but I was angry at this point. And the more I read, the angrier I got. And the more I read, the angrier I got. And the more keen I was to read more and more and more um, to the point where I actually wanted everything to not be true anymore because that was more comfortable. That would just fuel the anger. And that was all very private, though. Um, because at, that, at this point I had an Instagram account with maybe like, uh, say maybe 80 to hundred thousand followers, I think. And that's a lot of people. Gosh, and, yes. I, and <laughs> I was scared that if I changed publicly what I was saying and eating that I would get attacked. And that was a very well-founded fear. <laughs> I'd like to point out because then when I did gradually change things, the little things people didn't notice, but then the first time I posted a picture of eggs, I got a lot of abuse from people. I got a lot of hate. I was told I was a disgusting human being and a terrible person. And I lost thousands of followers over the next few months. And uh, that abuse has been kind of steadily trickling my way pretty much ever since, just in a variety of formats. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that must be incredibly hard. How do you cope with that? It's now been, I think I've been on Instagram for seven years. And I have dealt with regular shit from people for probably a good four of those years. And you know what? After a while, you kind of get used to it. And it's really depressing. And I don't want to glamorize it in any way because I don't think anyone should have to go through it. But honestly, I'm so used to it now. It doesn't really affect me that much anymore. It takes a lot for it to affect me, um, which happened recently, which was hilarious. Um but for the most part, those individual uh, things I get from my posts, I can kind of brush it off a lot of the time. And I'm very liberal with the block button now because I cannot be bothered. Some people are just not even worth arguing with in the first place. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, we, I, I, 
there's a that kind of difficulty of getting people outside of their comfort zone and you went through an amazing process because that must be it's cognitively incredibly hard to read all about that stuff and you know to have your beliefs challenged and then the rational yep. part of your brain to come over that sort of emotional immediate judgment that you've made so i mean i could see why you'd have got angry because you'd, it would have had to provoke some kind of response because it's so uncomfortable cognitively that kind of dissonance you get mm. going through that I'm surprised yeah. that you're still going with Instagram in some ways with all that abuse. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, There are some good sides to it. I've met a lot of incredible people, especially healthcare professionals and researchers through Instagram. And at the moment, I still feel I'm at the point where uh, what I'm doing, I think, on social media is still worthwhile and still has a net positive effect uh, on others. And not necessarily for myself, but it's a, it's something I'm not willing to give up just yet. Uh, but also, I mean, I get messages on a regular basis from people who said that who have said that, you know, they followed me for a long time and that at first they are uncomfortable with what I'm saying. But the more they read it, the more they start to agree. And eventually they say, you know what, you were right. And I'm so glad you changed my mind. So <laughs> that persistence really is worth it. And that's partly why I keep going. Yeah, well, well done, because I think that is the key, isn't it, as well, that one of the things we have to do is try to engage with each other, whether we mm -hmm. whoever's right or wrong. And we all can hold wrong opinions potentially, though I don't think we're particularly so wrong here though, in most of these nutrition things. If you, that engaging is really the key thing, and that must be God, it must be a real boost when you get a message like that that it has kind of you have managed to influence somebody and it has changed their perspective. Yeah, honestly, it's it's one of the main things that keeps me on Instagram. I think um, because it just it does make it really worthwhile. Yeah, and it's really nice amongst all the. Or the you know big accusations of being a shill for the dairy industry, or you know being accused of just trying to make people ill, which doesn't really make sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of my job to do the opposite. But yep, okay. <laughs> so you went from so you had that sort of epiphany, if you like, in Australia, and you started doing this research in Melbourne. At what point did you then go off and you know you had you? I'm not sure if you'd thought about doing a nutrition degree before that, but suddenly did that? Not that's what slightest. pushed you into it. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it at all. At that point, I was still dead set on actually studying medicine. That was my career plan. The reason I'd taken a gap year is because I didn't get into grads, uh, graduate medicine programs. So um, now I'm quite thankful that happened because I honestly think that this is a much better career path for me personally, just better suited to me. Um, it wasn't until so I got home from Australia that July. I applied for a nutrition master's in July got accepted in August and started in September. It was super, super quick turnaround. But I just, I knew it was what I needed to do, partly because I was really interested in actually putting all my uh, my anger and I guess activism in a sense to, to good use through having that uh, scientific background mm. and having the qualification, but also because I was criticizing wellness bloggers for not having nutrition qualifications. And I thought, hey, let's not be a hypocrite. Let's actually get a nutrition qualification so that I'm not accusing people, uh, so I'm not doing the very thing I'm accusing people of. Yeah. How did you find doing that master's? Had you did uh, was, your, was your first degree a scientific subject at all? Biochemistry. Yeah. But obviously, you were thinking about medicine. It was along those lines. Yep. Yeah. So that so wasn't that a big step then going into nutrition? Obviously, the science and that sort of that kind of evidence, that kind of approach, scientific method, if you like, wouldn't have been too much of a mystery to you. No, not at all. And also, you know, the first um, the first 12 weeks of a nutrition master's is basically pure biochemistry. Uh, it was basically a lot of what I'd learned over three years condensed into 12 weeks and uh, everyone found it very challenging. And 
but I didn't because it was like I've done this before this is great like I feel like I feel like I'm really on top of this and then it got into the bit after and I was like okay now I actually need to really concentrate um no it was great I'm really glad I did uh did the masters I actually I actually teach on that masters now which is really cool oh that's nice it's nice when you sort of that goes and I teach on a medical course as well now and it's like I kind of I really value that coming coming full circle and coming back now to um, yeah yeah it's a lovely feeling yeah it's very it's very satisfying yeah, uh, I do. yeah. So uh, I must ask. So the thing is, you you originally plant based. Pixie was your website. Um, yeah. Um. You just posted just recently about that kind of plant based approach and how it's not what you're all about in any shape or form. Um. But I wondered. I'm, I'm, I thought I'd ask you just briefly because I think it's an interesting um uh, difference that a lot of people don't fully appreciate. Is that difference between plant based and vegan? and where yeah. you sit on that and i think that's quite an important thing to talk about because it's they're both mentioned fa- they're mentioned fairly interchangeably in the media and i know you've got a view on it which i think is a very sensible one and might ring with ring true with a lot of people yeah it definitely it frustrates me a little bit when the two are conflated because they they aren't the same thing um firstly veganism is obviously about a lot more than just food um and just otherwise does the whole vegan the movement of veganism a whole massive disservice and there's this idea that well plant-based is veganism without the ethics um but actually if you look at all the research on the term plant-based there's a huge variability and a huge amount of flexibility in terms of what the definition is which i think is wonderful i think it's great that it's such a flexible definition because it basically encompasses anything from about two-thirds to 100 percent plants anything within that frame can be considered plant-based and whatever is attached onto that is irrelevant like it could be you can attach any amount any kinds of foods onto that but this this focus on plants is actually probably a good thing but the issue is is that people think it means vegan and that me the one of the reasons why i wanted to get away from that term is because people assumed i was vegan and firstly i dislike any assumptions about what i'm eating (laughs) um i and I i just it left me open to a lot of um a lot of negative messages from people who would follow me because they thought I was vegan and then attack me when I wasn't what they thought I was which was like this I don't feel like this is really my fault this is your assumption but at the same time you know obviously this word has an attachment to it that I don't agree with but other people uh, understand differently and so you know what I can't I can't be bothered with this so I'm just going to move away from it but also mainly I think as a healthcare professional to have the name of a type of a diet in your username or as part of your name is probably not the best thing to do because I don't think I think it implies that you are not being neutral you're not being objective and that you are biased in the way that you think about food and I don't think as a healthcare professional that is the way we should be talking about food or that is not the image that we should be putting across to the general public that there is a perfect way of eating because it implies that I'm eating this way, therefore you should too. And I think that it's important for healthcare professionals to be diet neutral in terms of how they are perceived at the very least online. And that's another reason why I was really keen to get away from that word in my professional career, because I don't want people to assume that if they work with me, that I'm going to force them to eat this way because that's absolutely not what I'm trying to do. Yeah. But I, 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 I didn't appreciate that actually that perhaps plant-based had a wider definition. I was kind of thinking it was 
I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd given it much thought actually till I read your blog post. Uh, but it's interesting that it could be it could be defined as as you know uh, two thirds, you know, of your diet was is plant rather than anything else. And actually, yeah. that's that is really good because actually, there are lots of people who might not otherwise, you know, who would who would actually be swept up in that definition as well, and they might quite like that. They might appreciate, they, you know, mm. they feel that because a lot of people feel a desire to move towards that, but they don't perhaps, they feel, I think it's a really high barrier veganism in some ways, that kind of 100% plant-based, 100%, yeah. you know, where you don't eat anything else, everything else is verboten. And it's and you mentioned in your blog post, you have to start checking the labels of various bits and pieces of everything to make sure you're not transgressing in some way. Yeah, Otherwise, you're absolutely. effectively, a, as you say, there's a bit of a moral judgment. You're a bad person for, for doing that. And I, yeah. I, I like your more flexible approach. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, as a, as a species, humans are quite uncomfortable with that, with that degree of flexibility and nuance. That's why we prefer the idea of plant-based meaning 100% plants, because we prefer black and white absolutes. But that's exactly why I deliberately wrote that post, to get people to think that, about that differently, because I think the most important thing that in nutrition we can do is get people to understand that it's not black and white and that there's a lot of nuance in every possible sense yeah yeah absolutely so um one thing i wanted to ask about was um what kind of what, what are the main problems you see when it comes to eating you, you mentioned i think it's in your um it's the uh it's your initial it's your wellness rebel book your first book mm. and you talked about eating for aesthetic goals and i hadn't really ever sort of thought of it like that so people who are eating just to be, to, to change how they look more than anything else what do you think some what are some of the major problems people run into with that i think the the main issue i have with that is because what's underlying that is the assumption that your appearance is an accurate measure of your health when actually health is a lot more complicated than a lot more complex really than just the way you look and you can't necessarily tell that much about a person's health simply based on their physical appearance and that assuming someone's health based on their physical appearance is actually not a very nice thing to do and not exactly very helpful. And so when we purely focus on aesthetics, again, we are prioritizing our physical health at the potential expense of mental health and also at social health as well. And if there's anything I've really learned really concrete from nutrition is that I think, and just health in general, I do think that physical, mental and social health need to be seen as equal and need to all be on the same level and treated with the same respect. And eating for aesthetic reasons is prioritizing one over the other two, which can for some people, sometimes that can be fine. But the potential risks of that are huge and are incredibly pervasive because we have a population that has a huge issue with body image dissatisfaction. I think it's now the statistics say that it's up to 80% of women and at least 50% of men are dissatisfied with the way they look. And that is a problem because that drives things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, disordered eating, a whole host of, of uh, psychological issues because we're so, as a society, place so much value simply on someone's appearance when there is so much more to someone than that they can offer the world than just the way they look. Yeah. And one of the things that most people, that, of course, that's, we're talking about dieting when it comes to like eating for aesthetic goals. For most people, because we are, you know, as a population, there's a kind of, there's a pressure to lose weight. There's this kind mm -hmm. of constant talk about obesity and obesity epidemics. And most people probably are aiming for some kind of, you know, apparently, you know, allegedly perfect body, which is involves losing some weight. 
I know that yeah. that was something you talked about a lot more in your more recent book. Um, yes. So go on. What the No Need to Diet book, which pretty much says it on a nutshell. God, what <laughs> what is so absolutely fundamentally crap about dieting? Well, I mean, firstly, there's that the, for the vast majority of the population, they don't really work. I mean, yeah. if you look at all the long term data, and by long term, I mean, you know, more than a couple of months. Because if you look at it just from, you know, the basis of, you know, 30 days, yeah, diets really do work in 30 days, 100%. But after those 30 days, not so much anymore. And if we look at the long term data, what it really shows is that um, people aren't able to maintain weight loss after a long period of time. People uh, actually are quite are often quite likely to regain weight that they've lost and actually end up at a higher weight than before. But on top of that, we end up with a whole host of side effects of dieting that are um, often psychological. So, you know, stress and guilt and uh, food obsession. And yeah, dieting is one of the biggest risk factors for eating disorders. That's important to mention. And on top of that, it just it leaves people open to uh, stigmatization in society where people who are deemed to be not attractive based on the way they look are less likely to be hired they're less likely to be paid the same amount they're less likely to get married and or and more likely to be dismissed on for if they go to a, if they go to their doctor for example which is really sad and really not absolutely not okay so it's really not working for one thing for the but you know for there's a small subset of the population for whom it does but for the vast majority of people it doesn't work and it's actually making people feel worse about themselves. And on top of that, it's making us behave worse and judge each other a lot more. So we're actually behaving worse to each other as well as to ourselves, which doesn't really strike me as it being a good solution for people to do, considering it's kind of not very effective. Yeah. And I think that if we're going to be telling people, advising people to do things, we should probably be advising people to do things that uh, have a bit of a, a better success rate and are also a bit more ethical, perhaps. Yeah. Interesting. So what, what do you think the alternatives are then, Pixie? What, what, I mean, uh, there is probably a strong public health case. If I, put the, if I put the kind of the devil's advocate view, there's a strong public health case if we reduce the population's weight across the piece. If you, if you, if you take out all those individual effects, and I completely agree that they are, you know, that kind of unconscious bias thing that goes on all the time in all sorts of shape mm. and forms and and weight and appearance are definitely part of that as well um what do we do as an alternative do we do you think you know what what how do we in a population basis if you're a public public health person who's standing in front of you what what is a better approach to diet and to to food i should say yeah okay it's really complicated so to, I think when what we're doing on a public health level in particular, and I completely sympathize because it's so difficult to try and tackle this on a public health level. I think to try and make the population healthier, I am by no means trying to say that they're doing a terrible job and they're terrible people or anything like that, because I think, you know what, they're trying. And yeah, they maybe get it wrong sometimes, but that's okay. But I think what we maybe need to be doing is something that is incredibly difficult and borderline impossible. And that is uh, looking at the the issue of people's health in a much broader much more all-encompassing way that doesn't just focus on individual behavior because that is such a small part of it i think yes we probably do need to you know to a certain extent that still needs to be part of the equation but on top of that we also need to uh, help reduce health inequalities and actually make it make uh, healthy behaviors more accessible to people who are unable to perform healthy behaviors because of factors that are well outside of their control. 
And then we also need to be, to a certain extent, looking at the food industry and get and guiding them in the direction of, hey, can you kind of help us out with all this and uh, just make everything a bit easier? So actually getting them involved in the process. I think we need to do that as well. I don't agree with taxation, but I think reformulation is probably uh, a potentially useful thing. And we also need to change the public's understanding of what health is. And I think when we, we need to stop focusing so much on weight on an, in, an, in every level, but especially in the media and social media and getting a better health education for the public and getting people to understand that health is much more complicated, partly just so that we can stop being dicks to each other simply based on the way that people look. That would be great. And I think we need to have a better education on critical thinking the scientific method mm. and the diversity of what it means to be human in schools yeah i think um yeah i i think you're right about the there's no question about the effectiveness of diet and it's because it is rubbish and all the long-term data back you up on that that it's just garbage and it's it, depressing really it is and even when you i remember a study we had in the british journal of general practice a couple of years ago and it was comparing the various kind of weight watchers and slimming world and all the rest of them and i can't remember which one came out best in the end but i remember they were very triumphant that they came out but they came, and i show this to the students and they were something like overall after 12 months it was a 2.4 kilo weight loss versus a 1.2 kilo weight loss and wow. if you're somebody who wants to lose weight Losing four or five pounds is borderline non as a borderline non-event, and of course, they would consider that a failure. Most people would consider that as yeah, a diet fail. I know, and the uh, and it was it was astonishing that the organisations were you know triumphant that they were ahead. But overall, what it really suggested, the bigger message was these are really rubbish ways to go about improving your health. It's not making not making any difference. Um, yeah, it doesn't really do that much. But well, we also know, for example, that actually getting people to engage in healthy behaviours has a massive can potentially not it can potentially have a massive impact on their health mm. and their risk of mortality independent of weight sometimes weight loss is a side effect of that but sometimes it's also not and even if it's not people still experience benefits mm. from eating more fruits and vegetables for example or moving a little bit or not smoking these things can have massively positive impacts on people's health and risk of mortality even if their weight doesn't change but someone understandably your average person would maybe would do that not lose weight and would see that as a failure and that's the problem is that when they see that as the failure which is not their fault in any shape or form because that's how they've been basically taught to understand their own health and then they're less likely to continue these behaviors even though they're beneficial even though they might enjoy them because they didn't lose weight yeah and that is a that i think is a huge huge problem yeah it's yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a classic thing, though. It's a proxy marker, isn't it? Because really, what you want to, people to do is not to die or to have heart attacks or strokes or what have you. And that's the really important metric. But of course, at an individual level, that's an absolutely rubbish metric because you either have it or you don't. It's entirely binary, and most people don't have it. Whereas the weights are really hand. You seem the weight weight seems like a much better way to measure things. And in fact, it's really not what we're interested in in many ways. If people are mm. the same weight and not dying, then the public health people will be doing cartwheels. They'd be absolutely ecstatic. Um, yeah. I also think that perhaps the answer sometimes is, you know, you've got a very positive approach to food and, you know, what you eat and at best, you know, about just feeling good about it. And I sometimes think in terms of the public health overall picture, actually changing our environment, which is about legislation, about how we design our societies, about how we educate the kids 
and how we get people more physically active is a more positive way to go. Sometimes the problem with nutrition is the advice that people get is about having less or cutting them, you know, cutting things out and yeah. denying yourself. Whereas actually we need a more positive approach, which is about enjoying food, enjoying life and enjoying exercise and enjoying physical activity as well. Yeah. Also, we know that if people um, are able to just enjoy a slice of cake and not feel super guilty about it, they're actually more likely to just eat one slice rather than eating the entire cake because there's no <laughs> guilt. There's no, there's no, oh, if I don't eat this now, I will never get another chance to eat it again. And I need to eat it quickly so that no one can see me eat it. If you can just, if people can be able to just enjoy that process, that cake firstly becomes less desirable. It become it has much less power over people. And people think it should be the opposite. People mm. uh, assume that if we feel guilt and shame, that actually it drives us towards more healthy behaviors. But there's actually a really, really great study which compared attitudes in France and the US towards chocolate cake. In France, they associate chocolate cake with celebration. In the US, they associate it with guilt. And there was this assumption that in the US, because they had these associations of guilt, that therefore they would um, feel more in control around that food. And it was actually the opposite. So it's actually people who are able to enjoy food and not have those feelings of guilt and shame are actually less likely to overeat uh, on, on these foods and actually more in, feel, feel more in control and just more comfortable around those foods, which flies in the face of everything that we are kind of thrown at in terms of just how we think that we need to behave towards food. And they're similar towards exercise. I mean, there's so many gyms and so many of these like boutique gyms in particular that use this like massively punishing language, <laughs> which is so unhelpful. Like you don't need to punish yourself. You Actually, I think if you enjoy moving, that's surely the most important thing. It doesn't have to be the craziest workout. Just enjoy it. Yeah. I have um I have a problem with I think that's maybe perhaps the reason I am naturally uncomfortable with high intensity interval training hit stuff. And I've had a researcher from here at Lancaster, one of my colleagues, on talking about it. And there's some really good evidence for HIT that it can improve the sort of at least the physiological metrics. So there's an argument about again whether that's not the longer term important hard clinical endpoints like mm. mortality and morbidity. But um I think that's the the language around it. It is about, you know, and it's about sorting. It's just, it's something to be endured, get it over and done with in five minutes. And then you yeah. can move on and do something nicer with the rest of your life, which I just, which feels like a really detrimental message. Yeah. It's like literally like torture yourself, punish yourself. You know, you've got to sweat the pain away and, and all these things, all this very aggressive language. And yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, the hit is, can be beneficial, but if you don't enjoy it, then you're not going to be able to do it long term. And if you and you if you're not enjoying it, you're not actually going to get the same benefits from it yeah. in the same way, uh, which is always an interesting one. So actually, if we do exercise that we actually enjoy, and especially if we don't do it for aesthetic reasons, then we actually get so many more benefits from the movement that we do. Whereas if we're just focusing on punishing ourselves and on changing the way we look we actually get far fewer benefits from the exercise that we do and so like i don't really care what kind of movement someone does if they're doing something and they're enjoying it i think that's that's amazing and that's that's perfect mm. because i'd rather them do that than do something they don't and they really really hate and that they feel miserable doing and that they are almost inevitably going to stop after a while because they don't feel like it's worth it because they just eventually will get sick of punishing themselves and it will just make them feel shit about themselves. Yeah, no question. And uh, you've got to do the movement you like doing. And I guess some people do like doing hit. Fair enough. Yeah, um, and if you can... like it, 
Go do it. Knock Phil- yourself out. Have the best <laughs> time ever. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, fill your boots. The um, I, I, but uh, yeah, I, we shouldn't impose it on anybody. Do you do, do you find yourself discussing about exercise and physical activity quite a lot in your work you know, in terms of your nutrition, your consultations, and your patients? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I think it's so. I think it's important because if you don't mm. talk about that, you're really missing out a key part of. Uh, just talking about someone's health. And I feel like, you know, considering yeah. I preach about how we need to um, diversify our definition of health, for me to then not include that would be uh, <laughs> not very, not very much practicing what I preach. But no, in, in all my sessions with, with people, I talk about food. Yeah. I also talk about their thoughts around food, their feelings around food. I talk about their food behaviors, how they eat. Um, and also then things like stress, sleep, body image and exercise all these things are always covered with pretty much everyone i see regardless of what they come in for because i it's so important to get that overall picture yeah you've got to get all those things right Uh, interesting do you you think that kind of this is a a complete aside but do you think nutritionists are trained to do that um oh is there a focus in that so let's say your masters or when you become when you do this sort of training to work as that actually that's something that's included or is it just something most nutritionists are picking up as they go uh, stress is definitely included. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely an exercise is absolutely included. Um, mm-hmm. Sleep a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked to. I have done a lot of extra reading um, in that area. But it, it, a lot of it's quite basic, actually, yeah. when it comes to sleep. Uh, with body image, I've done extra training in that area, specifically in the re- in body image. Um, done extra CPD in that area specifically because I knew it was something that I was really keen on doing. I've also done extra training um with the British Psychological Society to get more of the mm. psychology elements. I'm obviously not a psychologist and I don't pretend to be, but there's no denying that those elements do creep into my work sometimes. And when they do come in, I want to feel prepared to know where my limit is with that and also be able to, any minor things, um, be able to um, help someone with with those issues, especially if they have an eating disorder, for example, or a form of disordered eating. So I've done a lot of extra training in those areas specifically because I feel like that's where I was lacking before. Yeah, interesting. Well, I was just thinking that about psychology, that it's a massive part of being, you know, any healthcare professional. Actually, I'm increasingly in recent months, perhaps the last year or two, becoming more and more obsessed with psychology and all oh our God, cognitive biases and all. And just because it influences everything we do, everything else is just, is, you're just building it on a got shifting sands. If you don't get that sort of psychological bit right, it's all just, you know, you're wasting your time. Yeah, and to be honest, that's, you know, if you look at things like food and body image and exercise, um, really the psychology is really what are the roots that underpin all yeah. of that. And just uh, those are, in effect, a lot of the time symptoms of the underlying psychological issues that are what a- what's actually really going on. And when you can start digging under those layers and understand, you can help someone understand why they are maybe behaving or thinking the way they are, which means that if they can understand themselves, they are more able to be kinder to themselves rather than be self-critical all the time. Yeah. Gosh, I'm learning so much about myself in that regard. And I'm just trying, every time I speak to a patient these days or someone else, I'm always trying to get it across about that kind of, and it applies to so much of your life, whether you're just trying to learn to do something new or whether you're trying to just be a little bit more, less grumpy in the morning or whether you're trying to yeah. You get improve your diet or just be more motivated about exercise. This psychology is just, um, I think it's a wonderful topic and yeah. um, so important. Um, yeah, in particular, the area of self-compassion. There's some yeah. really great research done, especially by uh, Kristen Neff in the area of self-compassion, which is just so interesting. And she's got a really good TED talk and done got a lot of amazing resources that are absolutely uh, accessible to everyone and are really worth exploring because 
being kinder to yourself, just being a bit more compassionate and understanding yourself actually enables you to do so much more in life and enables you to just enjoy life a bit more. And it's not about cracking the whip behind yourself because that doesn't really work long term. It actually just makes you quite miserable and isn't a very effective long term motivator. Yeah. And I think I get the feeling that it underpins a lot of your approach to food. That's about kind of um, an enjoyment. And of, as you say, I think it's just on the front of you. Food should make you both happy and health, happy and healthy. Otherwise, what's the point? 100% so agree with that. But also, funny because life's too short to just, you know, eat things you don't like all the time. I'm not here for that. I would actually rather live a couple of years less and actually enjoy the process. Otherwise, why am I even bothering? Like, what's the point? Why, you know, why? Why? Why would you do that? Yeah, the irony is you almost certainly won't live less because you'll be happier and less stressed. And those psychological aspects exactly. of your, your mental health would make a huge difference anyway. So it's a kind of win-win, isn't it? Exactly. And that's why having pizza sometimes is exactly what I need to make me happy and make me live longer, apparently, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pixie, tell us a little bit more about where we can find out about all your work, the amazing stuff you're doing, your books. Um, and you're all, you know, obviously you're, you um, consult as a you're nutritionist as well. Where can we find you? Yep. So I have two books, the Wellness Rebel and the No Need to Diet book, which can be found online in the usual places, as well as all UK bookshops, as well as Australian bookshops, I believe. And then on top of that, I can be found online. I am at Pixie Nutrition on all the social media accounts. And if you are interested in one-to-one sessions with me, which would be absolutely wonderful, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. You can send me an email or go to my website, uh, com. We'll get links up for all those as well. Pixie, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating that would be incredibly helpful and any feedback is very welcome and so you can leave comments send email or make contact via twitter facebook and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blokeology.io thanks again thanks